being live streamed. Hello, folks. It is value after hours. It's 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. Uh, joined, as always, by my regular co-host, Jake Taylor, and special guest, Ian Castle. How are you, Ian? Doing great. How are you guys it's, doing? It's Ian. I'm so excited to have you on, Ian. <laughs> Glad to be here. So Ian, excited um, I put monkeys in the background of my <laughs> like we're three monkeys. There's uh, some exciting moves in the market over the last few weeks this year. Um, still haven't entered technical correction territory, which we had to look up just before we all kicked off here. So 20% a correction. We're not, we're not, or is it a bear market? I forget which one. Yeah. 10, I think is called 10 is correction. A correction. 20 is bear market. Correction. You need to get out of bed for a correction. <laughs> 20, even that's, even that's modest uh, for a deep value guy anyway. Portfolio can move around like that in a month, mostly down. <laughs> I was going to say my portfolio is in a correction. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think a I'm quite couple there corrections yet. stacked on top of each other. <laughs> this, uh, if we actually, if this actually turns into the big flush, this will be the third one in my in my career. I started on April 2000, so I got to see. I've, I've seen more. I've seen more bear markets than I've seen bull markets at this point. Mm, yeah. Two to two and two, right? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of assuming that this that we're entering into a bear market here. I guess I should have, I should have qualified it and said if that happens. Yeah, what, uh, what topics we got for today? Other than just lamenting uh, falling stock prices, <laughs> I have a few. Um, never sell hyperinflation. Uh, picking the right. Uh, sort of guru and uh, the, the risk of like selling off 50%. I, I think one of those might be yours, Jake, but I'm going to, I'm going to grab it. You, you can have it. <laughs> How about you, Ian? Not that you have to show up with anything, but if you do. No, that, that's okay. I thought I'd maybe share some thoughts on kind of managing through drawdowns, you know, since, since I think a lot of people are dealing with this, you know, whether you're, whether you're growthy or hyper growthy or value, you're probably dealing with some sort of drawdown. So I'd also be interested in that top level. (laughs) (laughs) Taking notes here. I've got uh, perhaps one of my more ambitious or maybe foolish. We'll see uh, attempts at a veggie segment on dopamine. And so I'm, I'm way over my skis, but we'll see. uh, We'll see how it goes. One of those monkeys looks like it's got a brow like mine. What are those? What type those of are, monkey is Those it? are baboons. Baboons. Yeah. Baboons, not a monkey. Yeah. I don't know. One of those great <laughs> apes. I always, I always get that part confused. Um, do you want to, do you want to kick it off, Ian? Are you, are you, yeah. Are you, you yeah, want sure. us to guess, warm you into it? Guess first. That's what well, I think. You know, maybe a good place to start, and and I'll pose this question to Jake first. But right, right. you know, during, during a, you know, during a drawdown, like when you look at your portfolio you know, in the fund or the assets you manage, when you're staring at your own stocks going down, are you more prone to add a new position to the portfolio or, or buy, you know, more of what you already know and trust? Mm, that's a, good, that's a question. good question. Uh, ideally, I would have calculated where my return on time and it goes and, you know, whether it is better to be spent on figuring out more and depth on the existing portfolio or searching for new positions to upgrade. Um, I don't know the answer to that yet, but I'm, I'm working on it. I'm gathering data on it at all times. 
Are you, I, are you discussing your journalistic at all? Is that is yeah? That public? That's that's where I, it's going to be recorded eventually. Um, but I, um, I mean, typically, it, I well, okay. So in a total drawdown where everything is puking, uh, I've kind of only been in one of those scenarios. Typic my before it been more like you know kind of idiosyncratic things puking. In which case. Uh, I like doubling down. Uh, that's pretty common for me. Um, and like, I actually try to buy small positions and work my way down to a lower cost basis as I go and like kind of keep capital available for that position to, to, to dollar cost average into. So uh, I, I prefer buying more of what I know, actually, but um, that doesn't mean I'm not pretty happy to occasionally scoop up something new and um, or upgrade in the portfolio as well, like punch something else out and and feel like I'm getting more quality for the same price. Or, um, but yeah, I don't know, Toby. How about you for your for the screen? Yeah, I you know I'm I have rebalancing dates now, so I don't I don't react to what is happening in the market because I used to not react very well. Um, I think I, I I can't honestly I can't remember what I used to whether I used to add or or double down probably a little bit of a little bit of everything um yeah so I, i've taken that i've taken that part out of my hands now because i'm just i'm not very good at it when it gets i get too excited i get into that hot state when the, when the market's going down and so i i'm in a little bit a little bit of a heightened state at the moment because uh, i've i'm kind of hoping we get a bit of a flush here but we're not quite there yet what, what's is there is there a good approach here do you have, yeah, a, what's do you have the a right suggestion? I'm not saying there is one. I was just curious how you guys approach that because it's something, you know, I've been journaling um, quite a bit on through Journalytic, you know, hat tip to Jake. And, mm. you know, just thinking more about that. I find, you know, the more vicious the drawdown, it actually just becomes harder to add a new position because, you know, you, I think during drawdowns, you get shorter term because um, the market just beats you up and you get more short term and you get, you don't want to lose more money. So you start thinking more about every one of your positions when their next earnings announcement is going to be. You start start micromanaging your portfolio because you really don't want to take another leg down. It's just like you can't handle it, you know, almost mentally. And so one of the things that I, and it, and it affects me as well, and I've been doing this for 20 years. Like one of the things I just try to do is try not to get more short term during drawdowns because that's when you make bigger mistakes and just trying to, you know, whether it's a two year, time horizon, which I feel like the smaller the company, the more um, more impressionable that smaller company is, the shorter kind of time horizon you can look out. But let's just say it's two years or three years or four years. You're just trying to stick to that two-year time frame and just keep on you know, telling yourself, okay, is this business going to be bigger, earn more money and not dilute me? And if the answer is yes, there's really not much else to do except buy more as that kind of stock comes back in. And if you have those opportunities you believe in, you know, a lot of times it makes sense just to likely add more to the things you already own versus, you know, add, adding a new position, which you don't know or trust yet. Because I do think that, especially as concentrated stock pickers, which is what I am, which I'm sure a lot of people are that are listening to this, you know, I do view kind of the, if you're concentrated, you know, sub 20 positions, especially sub 10, I mean, I do view kind of like, it's almost like a relationship, you know, with these companies. And a lot of these relationships with the stocks, it's like, you don't, you don't know how they really are until you know you've owned them for a period of time and you've got to see them react to different circumstances whether that's a macro circumstance or a micro circumstance um so 
and that was just one of the things I journaled that I had that I had out there. And I, and um, I think also kind of when stocks are dropping, you get more and more macro centered. You know, I think probably everybody on the Zoom probably has never thought more about interest rates, inflation, war, uh, whatever you want to call it, more than in the last sixty days. And I think the more you become more macro and less micro focused, the more you turn yourself into trying to be a more of a market strategist rather than a stock picker, you know, that's the wrong place to be. And it makes you unproductive and it paralyzes you to making any decision um, for the portfolio. And so I think for me, a lot of times I just need to stay micro focused. And the way I stay micro focused is really trying to stay in control of what I can, can control, which is the companies I invest in. And if you want to add a macro component to that, fine, then just decide that you believe that interest rates are going to continue to go up and that a recession is going to start imminently and make your investment decisions based on that and make sure the quality level of those businesses you're investing in can stack up well in that type of environment. Um, so that's that's how I kind of disconnect, at least try to disconnect in a productive way kind of during a market environment like a lot of people are going through right now. I think, I think yeah. there's something very insightful there with uh, the short-termism that creeps in because I think, you know, as you're taking this quotational pain you start to not want to see that next print, right? Like the next quarter, you're like, oh God, I almost don't even want to see it, right? There's so much uncertainty about like, is this going to be a landmine that just completely explodes it, right? And um, when you know that that's lurking, that uncertainty is like incredibly agitating. Uh, and you'd almost rather like, well, we'll get into this when we get to the dopamine stuff, but like there's a difference between risk and uncertainty when it comes to dopamine. And like, we find actual risk-taking often, like you get a dopamine hit from it, but uncertainty actually like turns that off and is, we find it agitating. Um, and so <laughs> the, uh, I think that you said something very smart there that, um, that short-termism now is like, you know, you're looking to that next quarter. And I, I don't know if you felt this way during when things were kind of going up, but like, you kind of look forward to that next quarter because you're like, oh, I think this company's been killing it. I can't wait to see the numbers, right? And now it goes, it flips completely in reverse, and now you're scared, like, oh, can't God, wait I to hope, see the print. Yeah, I hope they don't, you know, poop the bed in this quarter because, like, I can't take another, you know, fifty percent drawdown. And that's, and that's the human nature of it. It's like you overanalyze when things are dropping, and you underanalyze when things are going up. You know, instead of becoming a macro strategist during drawdowns. You know, you should just be nibbling the things you like as they go lower instead of just trying to pick a bottom, which can cost you more money. I found uh, you don't want to spend time on social media through times like this. Like I got one of the things I don't do. I don't check my portfolio prices during the trading day. That's that's one of my rules. Um, so I wait until everything closes because it kind of feels more static and slower. Things aren't moving all over the place. So you can, I, I find it easier to think when nothing's trading. But I can get like a contact high just by going onto social media and seeing everybody panicking one way or the other. And I've certainly got it today just from being on. I can see everybody, you know, going absolutely bananas on my in my stream. And yesterday too, everybody was going nuts. You don't need to know what the actual print is to know kind of roughly you what's just happening. Read the room. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, that it's less relevant to me because I already have. As, as Jake likes to say, I've sealed myself into the capsule. Like there's nothing really, I've removed all of my degrees of freedom for precisely this reason. The, the, the only other thing that I would say is when you're, when you're trying to decide whether you add or whether you um, add a new position or add to your existing holdings, 
I have found just through the testing that I have done that the best portfolios, of course, are going to be the ones that you form closest to the bottom. So it's sometimes it's not a bad idea if you've got something that you like. You know, maybe you should be thinking about the portfolio. And there's no, um, it's no sin to buy something and sell it lower because there's going to be if if this assuming this is not like a March 2020 or a late 2018 type market, and this turns into the real thing, which is like the 2002 or 2009, where it proceeds down all, all the way. That's going to happen, right? You're going to buy stuff and you're going to sell it low because there are going to be better opportunities and other stuff. And you just have to resign yourself to that fact and get over it now. Know that you're going to make a mistake on the way down. It's unavoidable. Everybody's going to be doing it. But the best thing you can do is like the best portfolio at any given time. So that's what I'm trying to get in mind. I'll, I'll rebalance in, in due course. I'll be trying to get whatever I think is the best portfolio at that time will become the portfolio. Yeah. Maybe um, a couple of things that I also that I wrote down were some, you know, keeping track of some of the unforced errors I made over the last 12 months, you know, and probably the one that was front and center, which I have in my rules of not to do, you know, which is another probably conversation. It's like, oftentimes it's kind of where you bend your own rules is where you can make irrational returns, but it's also what I can also crush you and try to weigh that in your <laughs> mind when you're doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the one of the rules I broke in a position uh, nine months ago is you know never to average down after a mediocre quarter because ninety mm. percent of the time, especially with a smaller company, another mediocre quarter is going to follow right behind it. Um, and so you know there was there was an instance where I kind of rationalized buying into something after they had a mediocre quarter. Sure enough, another one came. You know, and especially <laughs> in this market environment, like in this market environment, unless you're beating expectations, you're going to go down twenty percent the next day after earnings anyway um you know let alone missing so that was that was another kind of unforced error that i had to relive that kind of brought that rule back front and center and just like don't don't do that again um you know, so other, are there new you know, uh are there new things now falling down into your micro cap world that are kind of interesting because i would imagine that you know there's a few like, formal large caps yeah they used to be here. large caps and now they're now they're in ian territory yeah i mean there's a lot of interesting there's a lot of interesting things that are fallen angels right now. Um, and it's one of it's those a, things I guard. It's another thing I guard against mentally because as a micro cap investor, I like, I like new ideas that haven't been discovered yet because then 99% of the investor community is new to that story too. So the incremental buyer is everyone else where if I'm buying something that was a billion dollar market cap, it's now a yeah. hundred million market cap. Everybody already knows about it. The analysts already cover it. It's probably already liquid. And so it's really hard for me mentally, being how I've always been this way, to make that leap and and look at some of those fallen angels. But I am getting over that. <laughs> I, I am getting over that because there are some interesting things that are coming down. Is that, a, I'm not, yeah, so I was going to say, is that a benefit or a disadvantage? I'm not sure. It might be, it might be an advantage to have stocks already known by everybody. Yeah, I mean, it, I think so because you know, listen, I'm sentiment and perception kind of swing to extremes on both ends, and so you know, I think with some companies that extreme pessimism is certainly taken hold. And people can then imagine, like, well, it was at a billion, just right. It's going to go back there. It could go back there really easily. Yeah, 
I think not that I really want to dunk on Kathy too much, but I think that there's a lot of that. We've been looking at the flows into into Arc over the last like Arc's been consistently by the dip. The crowd in Arc has bought the dip pretty consistently through this. I think even up to you know yesterday might have been the first day of material outflows, and uh, I think last time I looked it was around the the stock price was around forty two off one hundred and fifty six, which is coming on like a seventy five percent drawdown, I think. Um, which is kind of extraordinary. It's sort of my topic, which uh, we don't have to jump to that yet, but that, that's that's where I was going to go. I'm not. It's not. A, it's not. I'm not. I'm not trying to dunk on Kathy. It's more. It's more just a, a comment about uh, being in Berkshire, talking to people who were uh, some of the people who are investors in Berkshire. We're, we're all, and I'm sure everybody listening to this is, um, we're investors, and we're trying to learn from Buffett to apply those rules or learn from other investors. It doesn't have to be Buffett, but learn from other investors to apply those rules in the way that we invest. Was there are a lot of people at Berkshire, and I kind of I just hadn't really thought about it. There are a lot of people at Berkshire who I talk to who don't know much about investing. They just um, trust Buffett. Like that's the basis of their investment strategy, which I think, you know. And crushed it, it, all of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably right. But the yeah. trust in Buffett, you know, that's paid off in spades. But you could easily have trust in another manager who doesn't have, um, you know, the same rigor in the process that that Buffett does, hasn't been around through as many cycles. And that trust may not be appropriately placed. And then you, you're you flying blind a little bit. Like you, you, you've got that, I think it's, is it the representative bias where you, you find the, your, your hero and you kind of follow the hero regardless of what they do? And initially, it's because you, they, what they do accords with what you believe in, and then subsequently, they they go off, they might go off pissed, and you find yourself off pissed with them. <laughs> Whereas I think, you know, I think it's to, to everybody's good fortune or to everybody's good good judgment that they follow Buffett. Is there are other managers out there who might lead you astray? Are you going to name names? No, I'm, I'm trying not to. <laughs> yeah, please. criticized by category. Yeah, that's one of the things I learned from Buffett. He actually said it. He was saying it to Charlie repeatedly during the year. Uh, and Charlie said, yeah, I can't help myself. I know that's better, yeah. but yeah. I can't help myself. <laughs> I, I find with investing, especially, you know, it's, it's, I think we talked about it before we came, came on live, you know, I think this industry in finance and FinTwit, especially, you know, people in finance really relish seeing others do poorly. You know, the, the peanut gallery is vicious. You know, and and I think it makes sense because our scoreboard, you know, is always front and center. Maybe if if not publicly in our own minds, you know, and, and it's all when, relative. You could be doing very yeah. well. You could be knocking out fifteen percent years, which sort of makes you a superstar over a long enough period of time. But if the Nasdaq's doing seventeen, what's wrong with you, baby? What have you done for <laughs> yeah. me lately, too? And, yeah. and there are certain investors who are like those indexes personified. So, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Keep going. No, no, no. It's it's fine. I mean, I think it's. I, I think it's also proof the market loves to, to destroy hubris in all its forms, you know, and, and people like to follow hubris in the way up and then they like to sell it in the way down. And I know, I know um, it's our, our human nature too. When we're all doing well, we want to be loud about it. You know, when we're all doing poorly, you want to, you know, go under a rock, Hot, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think kind of history is proven, you know, whatever the case may be, it's better to be quieter, you know, rather than, than louder. You don't want to call down the uh, thunder? Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Summon the thunderbolt. Summon the lightning yeah. bolt. 
because even somebody like Kathy Wood, like if she was less boisterous, obviously not making the comments she's made, and it was just a super hyper growth list of companies making no money, I don't think it would be quite as you know negative towards her. Because you know, yeah, I mean, even I was looking at the stats that you know, even since Ark's inception, I think they, I think even after today, she's like on par with what Burke has done since Ark's inception. Um, but and she, you could say, you could say, yeah, and you could say yeah. like the other side of it too, like, well, you know, Arc's down seventy five percent from the peak, and it's still on par with what Burke's done since two thousand fourteen. I mean, <laughs> Arc could probably dead cat bounce and make the same returns Burke could do over the next three years, you know. And I'm not trying to rain fire down on me. I'm just you know <laughs> trying to play the other. <laughs> I'm not even tracking Twitter right now, uh, but you know, it's just kind of it's interesting to think of that. And so I, I was pointing up the performance before we got on. But I think it all comes back to just trying to stay humble, stay quiet, you know, and also knowing that everybody, everybody can outperform, but it's usually at different times, you know, and so it, it, it's a, it's a quite a hostile world because, you know, obviously value, the opposite of value is somebody like her and we all have kind of the opposite. When you see the opposite of yourself doing well, it creates resentment and that's when, it, that's when you just dig in. I saw a stat. I don't know how true it is. I haven't verified the, check the math out, but that, uh, Berkshire, if it was down 99 point, I think it was 5%. It's Chris Blimstrand. It's probably okay. right. It's probably right. Yeah. Uh, th- that would then put it at par with uh, the S&P 500 over since 1965. <laughs> like you'd still be. Chris, wow. Chris sent that in a letter to Buffett and Buffett responded and he said, I think you're right, but let's not test the math. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> yeah, that's wild, isn't it? That that's it's hard to even wrap your head around that that he's performed that well over that period of time. I I, I got this um, uh, I've got this bad habit of going back and looking at stuff that's been beaten up and just running it back twelve months and seeing how it's done. So one of the things I did was AMC. I ran AMC back. You know AMC still up twenty five percent over the last twelve months. That's not bad. Is I'd be really? pretty happy with that. Wow. Tesla too. Tesla's up twenty five percent over the last twelve months. Good run for that. A few of the other ones are getting a little bit gnarlier. You got to run back. Sort of five years, but I've been looking at a few of them. Yeah. So Carvana, which today is now down 90% from its peak, um, which is kind of amazing because we we know quite a few people who are in that and reasonably good uh, investors who've, who've, you know, for good reasons, who've been in it. And it's just, if you're in any of those things, once they get, once the market hates them, then the hate is intense. They, they all get punished. Possibly it's a good place to go hunting for, for uh, some future super compounders, but those moves like that, may indicate that, you know, to your point earlier, Ian, that there is some sort of love for those things back up way up high. So maybe they can go all the way back up over a long period of time. Although I think people are going to have a lot of scar tissue on them from this. It's going to be hard to buy them for a while. Might be a good time to buy them. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to stomach that when you're when it's down 80% from peak. That's that's hard to stare back up at. You know? <laughs> yeah. You're in, Ka- sometimes you're in a hole. You got to stop digging. Kavana's <laughs> uh, Kavana's ninety, so that's that's fifty percent down from eighty. That's David Arnold's yeah. math there. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You can you can calculate it out yourself. The math checks out. Which which is one of the other things that we were talking about before we came on. Um, Berkshire Hathaway is a very very stable set of businesses that have very consistently generated high returns on equity. And lots of free cash flow, you know, for more than 50 years now. And Berkshire Hathaway has drawn down more than 50% twice in the last 20 years. 
And who knows through this, if this turns into a real correction, then is a correction, a real bear market, then, you know, it could easily be down 50% again. That's just, that's just what happened. So you got to believe that it'll happen to your, to everything that you hold. I think Buffett and Munger have said that you just got to expect that you'd be down 50. If you, any money that you can't have drawn out in 50% shouldn't be in the market. Yeah, I think he said something like, if if you can't tolerate a 50% drawdown with some equanimity, then you shouldn't be invested in equities. I think that's Munger's kind of quote. What if I can do it without the equanimity? <laughs> well, you tied yourself to the mass, so that's how you're able to, to stomach the sirens uh, song. But I haven't us, had a 50% drawdown yet. No, not yet. I managed to avoid it in 2020. I, I was down 37%. That might as well have been that last 13% didn't matter. There is an interesting phenomena, I think, that uh, in, at least in professional money management, where if you're down, you know, 10 or 20 percent, then, you know, you, and you tell your LPs like, hey, I'm seeing great deals right now. They'll send they send checks in. Right. That's noise. You're down 50 percent. Then, like, I think they're kind of like, whoa, you have bad risk management. They're punching out. Right. And then if you're down 90 percent, though, they're like, well, you know, we might as well. This is like What's a lot of now. Like, yeah, it's already blown up. I might as well try to ride it back. And so then they don't leave. And there's like a weird, you know, is that like that bell curve thing with the the super smart guy and the the moron on the two ends of the bell curve? Yeah, the the yeah. Once you're down ninety, it might it's just all gone. So might as well might just as well. free roll it back and see what you can get, right? Yeah, I think I think to that point, I think if you are managing other people's money, I think it's also. The best thing you can do, and you know, I manage a small fund with some outside investors. The, the best thing to do is always be honest with people upfront about the volatility, you know, of a portfolio. And listen, we're, when we say volatility, nobody uses volatility to describe the upside. Sorry about <laughs> downside, you know. And, and I think it's all always the best. You, just I mean, to you can tell them that, though, center. I know, right? I know, and but it doesn't really you have to really sink in. You, you have to just be very blunt about it and whether they actually can live through it is another thing. But I think it's important just to make mention. I know one of the first things I tell everybody that came in was if the market's down 30, I'm going to be down 45. You know, are you still interested? You know, and it's like hit in between the eyes. Cause if you're not, you, know, you can't see through this to the end then don't start, you know, cause that's, it's just inherent, you know, in the, in the type of strategy that I do, you know? So I think it's important to always be honest, not describe yourself as something you're, you're not, which is always up and to the right, you know? I think David Tepper is one of those investors who, who is quite open about that. He's like, a, I'm a, it's a high volatility strategy. There's going to be a lot of vol both ways. So, uh, you know, know what you're belts. getting. Yes. Yeah, size your, size your investment accordingly. Mm -hmm. yep. You got to get the downside volatility to get that upside volatility sometimes, I think. A spring. Got, it's a, it's a spring. A spring. Coiled yeah. spring right now. <laughs> getting more coiled every day. <laughs> I saw on Twitter now never sell has become never cover. <laughs> That's dangerous too, I think, isn't it? It never anything is just a, probably a foolish yeah, way to go through right life. Yeah. Never cover. I don't think that's going to work either. I think you're going to get covered. Um, covered in what? <laughs> dirt. Anyone taking a Buffett's bet on Activision? I don't, I'm not, but that doesn't mean there's not something interesting there from a merge arb. I had a look at it today. It was like, it's 76 with 95 as the bid. So it's got a bit of a spread then, huh? It's 25%. It's um, pretty fat for a, at least that's like, that's old school merge arb. It used to. 
25%, I don't know when it closes, but uh, likely probably by the end of the year. I mean, I, I don't know. That don't, 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 don't bet on that. I, I don't know. <laughs> there is some, there is some antitrust that has to go through and that can, that can delay it a lot, but I don't, I don't think it would be, I mean, I guess Microsoft's got a big gaming division, haven't they? Maybe that will be an issue. I don't know. Speaking of antitrust and enforcement, I was kind of thinking about that in the shower today. Cause that's what I do. Uh, and I was thinking actually, like if you were an enterprising uh, politician who really wanted to make a name for yourself, wouldn't now be the time to kind of go after some of these like big monopolies? Because, you know, like maybe if the bubbles burst a little bit, you're not going to be blamed for blowing up everyone's 401ks. Like it's already kind of started. Uh, there might be a little bit more vulnerable than like when everyone's making money, no one wants to hear why this should stop. Right. And, but, but if there, if people aren't making money and now people are willing to pile onto it, like, I don't know, like I would think that your political risk actually, I, I think would maybe be dialed up now if you were worried about that. Does it get the people going though? Microsoft well, if, Activision? Well, I'm not, not that one maybe specifically, but I'm just saying kind of more generally, maybe, you know, the uh, monopolies, the uh, advertising shenanigans that some of the companies have that are kind of, you know, bother some people. When I look at, when I look at, you know, so say Elizabeth Warren as, as a demagogue who likes to put these highly misleading tweets out that if you know anything about it, you know that it's not correct. But if you don't, and it's kind of very shareable, and I always think nobody believes this stuff, but then I was at a party on the weekend talking to people who are, you know, of age and they've got different views and they, they sort of, they are very upset about, basically it's trickling down from her tweets, I think, or, you know, other similar tweets like that. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're absolutely convinced that the, that the oil and gas companies are gouging people at the pump. And I sort of, you know, I don't think it works that way. And if you could go back and have a look at how much money they made over the last decade, it's not much. Ooh. Yeah, ROEs of zero basically for a decade. How do you make money from negative $37 oil? Volume. <laughs> <laughs> Subscription. <laughs> oil as a service, gas as a service. <laughs> hey, hang on, that might be a really good idea. Ooh, hold on. Don't give away all our good ideas. <laughs> I get a little carry on anybody here, a little, little, uh, little trail on whoever puts that one together. JT, you want to do, your, do yours? Uh, no, but I will. Uh, all right. So this, uh, this segment comes from, I, I finished recently reading uh, this book called Behave by Robert Sapolsky. He's a professor at Stanford who teaches about neurobiology uh, and a bunch of other stuff and spends his summers with, with baboons for the last 30 years in Africa, like studying them. So that's hence the my little background of some monkeys is is kind of the a little tip of the cap to Robert, who uh, actually honestly is on my my top five of if I could have lunch with anybody and just pick their brain and chat with them, he's on there because he's just I think he's so interesting and so smart. Uh, but so this this segment is on dopamine specifically, which is a neurotransmitter in your brain that uh, actually uh, I think would be useful if maybe as I'm going through, you guys think about like potentially business and investing implications. And, and I, cause I'm actually starting, like I'm increasingly of the belief that the dopamine actually drives like the success of every single business. Um, and like the consumer behavior is all driven by dopamine. So, um, all right. So, but I'm going to go through and kind of share some facts about dopamine that might be 
fun and or entertaining or just uh, just edifying. Uh, so at first pass, the, the dopaminergic system, which is describes like these multiple parts of the brain uh, that that function a bit differently, depending on how much dopamine is it uh, is in there is it's about reward, right? So there's various pleasurable stimuli that will trigger release of dopamine in your brain. So drugs like cocaine and heroin and alcohol trigger trigger the release. Have now, you tried Robin Hood? Though? <laughs> well, that's so we get to that coming. Yeah. If uh, so, if you block that release, though, something that was previously rewarding at the stimuli becomes aversive and it's chronic stress and pain will deplete dopamine and decrease your sensitivity to it. And so that that's what produces the symptoms of depression. Uh, and it's called anahedia, which is like uh, the inability to feel pleasure. So you know, uh, that chronic stress and pain, Toby, of your portfolio the last yeah, five years. Say, you just deep value your investor. <laughs> Wait, so we de depleted your dopamine in a big way, decreased your sensitivity to it, right? Um, and now, of course, we have to talk, uh, you know, sex releases dopamine in every species that's ever been examined, which, you know, if you, if you think that, um, you know, a, a chicken is an egg's way of making another egg, uh, it kind of makes sense. Um, so, as you might guess, like these responses uh, to sexually arousing stimuli, they're, they're they're greater in men than they are in women. And but this isn't the finding is that it's not specific to humans. So apparently male rhesus monkeys will go for they'll forego the chance to drink water when they're thirsty in order to see pictures of basically like crotch shots of female rhesus monkeys. <laughs> so uh, so I guess, they figure that out. Uh, yeah, in, in the that. lab showing them, but like even like other pictures of the, the female rhesus monkey in other contexts don't, they'll still go drink the water, but it's, it's the crotch shots apparently. Um, so, uh, food also evokes dopamine release in hungry individuals of all species. Uh, but if you're full, there's actually no activation. So it's kind of interesting. Um, another thing is it, it, we respond to pleasurable aesthetics. So in one study, people were listening to music, like new music and, the more that their accumbens was activated, which is like kind of an older part of your brain, uh, the more likely they were to buy the music afterward. And they could actually like correlate that. Um, there's also activation for like cultural inventions. So like picture like males looking at pictures of sports cars <laughs> will trigger your dopamine. Um, research from economic games shows that there's dopamine triggered whenever when you punish someone who's a jerk in the game, who's cheating. Um, so any and punishing of any norm violations in society is is a triggering and satisfying thing. Weird. Um, yeah, we're 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 wired to punish norm violators. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> you could say like Karen is driven by by dopamine effectively. Um, so, winning an auction will release dopamine. Losing it will inhibit it inhibit dopamine release. So, you know, no wonder it's it's you know we it can be painful to like chase stock prices with limit orders that never get filled, you know, and uh, you could see why Buffett never participates in auctions. Um, Cause he, he could see that he'd be subjecting himself to, to chasing dopamine. Uh, so here's a depressing finding. Uh, take a monkey, put him in a lab. And he learns that if he presses this lever 10 times, he gets one raisin. All right. Nice. Like he gets 10 units of dopamine released. Now take that monkey and he presses it 10 times and he gets two racins. Oh, score, like it's 20 units of dopamine. Now the, the lever continues to do this two raisins for every 10 presses. He's on the, but the dopamine response actually trends back down to the 10 unit release, even though you're still getting two raisins, right? You become habituated. 
Now reward that monkey with a single raisin for his 10 pushes. And now the dopamine levels decline and he's upset. He's angry. Uh, so this is basically like the, the hedonic treadmill that we all live on. And, and I think explains a ton of man's misery is basically like we go around pushing the, the lever 10 times and we're getting, you know, we're getting more raisins from society than we ever got as a species. And yet we're still unhappy. Um, and nothing is as good as the first time that, that you experience it. Um, so other monkeys, other monkey studies have shown that the dopamine system is actually, it's scale free. So they take a monkey and they train him to expect either two or 20 units of reward. And then, it, then they give them either four or 40 for a surprise ward. And it shows actually the same burst of dopamine. So like the scaling doesn't matter. And if you bring them back to like one or 10, you get a decrease, even though 10 is like way more than the, the, like the two that they were getting before. Um, so basically like if you get what you were expecting, you get this steady drip, a dribble of dopamine, but if you get more reward or you get it sooner than expected, you, there's a big burst of it. Uh, and of course, if you get less than what you're expecting or it happens later, you, you get a decrease in dopamine. So uh, this system, Unfortunately, I think for our modern version of ourselves evolved from a, in a completely different environment, right? Like your ancestors might have occasionally stumbled over a beehive and like got access to like a bunch of sugar uh, and then like triggered this huge dopamine hit. And now we have hyper, hyper palatable food on every single corner, right? Like you just can't get away from it. Um, and, you know, we used to have very subtle kind of hard won pleasures. And now it's all bright flashing lights, loud noises, confetti. Uh, you know, over the top sexuality. Like we live in this artificial deluge of intensity that is just like hammering our dopaminergic, our dopaminergic systems in a way that our, you know, most of our evolution would have been completely foreign. Um, so next segment is about like uh, dopamine is also about anticipation. So back, take our well-trained monkey, put him back in the lab and a light comes on in his room and that signals the start of a reward trial. He goes to the lever, presses it 10 times, gets his raisin, and there's this small increase in dopamine for each raisin, as you'd expect. However, there's actually lots of dopamine released when the light first comes on, which is the signal to the start of the reward. And once the monkey becomes habituated to that, the dopamine is less about the reward and more about the anticipation of the reward. And so dopamine in that context is really about like mastery and expectation and confidence. Like I know how this works and, and this is going to be great. And that's when you get it triggered. Uh, but here's where it gets a little bit weird. So the light comes on and that signals the start of a reward trial. The monkey presses the lever, it gets the raisin, but only 50% of the time. So that's the, the twist on this part of the study. Suddenly there's far more dopamine released. At why? Well, nothing fuels dopamine release like that maybe of an intermittent reinforcement, right? Like, so that chance of winning and, you know, of course, and near misses send the, the dopamine soaring, right? So of course, Las Vegas figured this out a long time ago, you know, randomness to it, you know, 50% of the time, maybe winning uh, and then showing you like seven, seven cherry. Oh, I was so close to winning like dopamine through the roof. Uh, another study uh, showed that like, if you take two, identical betting situations. So the probabilities of reward are the same, but the information that's given about the contingencies of the reward, like how would you win are, are different. The situation with less information, a lot more ambu ambiguity about it than risk activates the amygdala, which is your fear center. Uh, and that actually silences the dopamine signaling. So 
what is perceived to be like a well-calibrated risk, it becomes addictive because that triggers dopamine. But where there's ambiguity, it's just agitating. And so that goes back to what we were talking about, like with the uncertainty of that next quarter, like hating uncertainty way more than actually even perceived risk. Um, and Mr. Market, I think, kind of identifies that pretty readily. Um, dopamine is also responsible for goal-directed behavior. So it brings the value of the reward of that resulting work and, and, and it actually gives rise to like motivation. And, and often those are from projections that come from your prefrontal cortex. So this is kind of where delayed gratification and willpower come in. Um, but what about something where like our species is very odd and that we're able to imagine scenarios years out, like you go to school for 10 years to get some job. Uh, whereas like, you know, there's no rhesus monkey that's like, oh, I'm going to wait, you know, in three years, if I work hard at this, like I'm going to get this outcome. It's, you know, there's is much more short timeline. Um, the dopamine actually gradually ramps up as a function of the length of the delay and the anticipated size of the reward. And, and it turns out that it's this weird concoction of your dopaminergic system, your frontal cortex, your amygdala, which is the fear, your insula, which is like an old, old part of your uh, your brain, they all code for differing aspects of what the reward might be, the magnitude of it, how long it thinks it's going to take, the probability of winning. And it like concocts it into this, this entire thing that basically like will influence whether we manage to do the harder, more correct thing over time. Like willpower is, a, is made up of all of these things. Uh, last interesting thing, because I know I've been rambling on here for quite a while. Um, That's good. There's the the seven R variant of this dopamine receptor DRD4 is associated with impulsivity and novelty seeking. So if you have this seven R variant, you're more likely to be uh, go after like new experiences. So what's amazing is that if you look at a map of the prevalence of this seven R variation in the populations today of the world, you can actually track how humans migrated out of Asia and like they went island hopping down into you know, Paul, uh, Micronesia and all of the, like, uh, you know, Philippines and all through, or all down through these islands that are in that area, like, uh, Oceana. And the further you go South, the more seven R variant that you see. And then also if you go like over the Bering Strait and down through North America and down into South America, the further you go South and in, in South America, the more that you see the seven R variant. So basically like the, the reason that people are kind of spread in different parts of the map is related to how much novelty seeking they had. So they're like looking for new experiences and they just keep going and traveling. Uh, and that's all driven by like the, the response to dopamine. So, um, all right, that's all I got. I'm, I'm, re I'm ready to take the rest of the show off, uh, but I don't know if you guys <laughs> want to try to chime in with some business stuff that might tie this all back together. So, um, I thought that was great. How, how do we harness the the dopamine receptors for good rather than evil? Because I think San Francisco uh, tech companies, Bay Area tech tech companies, have kind of figured out how to harness it for evil. Get you scrolling on Instagram or TikTok or whatever. How, how do you use it for good? I mean, I think you have to. Well, first of all, I think it's just good hygiene to take breaks from it and let your dopamine system like downregulate. Uh, and that's probably like time in nature, time with family, time without screens, um, d like recreate, like camping, like recreate a, uh, hunter gatherer type of life for a little while at a time. Um, and I think the Stoics actually stumbled upon something with this as well, where they would take, you know, they'd live roughly for a, a day or two a month to just sort of reset, like, what are your expectations as to like, you know, what should the world be offering me as in my, <laughs> you know, what do I deserve? Um, so they would eat poorly, wear rough clothing. Um, 
sleep under a bridge. One of them, I think, didn't he famously? Toby, I'm sure you know better than I do. Yeah, I, 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 Diogenes always slept in a barrel, but he was a cynic, not a stoic. Okay. Um, I'm, see, I'm all off. But uh, I think that there was, I think that's true. Seneca talks about that living a little bit roughly every now and again, just to remind yourself. I think the other frame of mind that I've started using lately is like, what, how is this company tapping into dopamine for its consumer, for its, its customer? And, you know, is it, like we said, like speed matters, like convenience, like the sooner you get it, like if there's a surprise, then like that triggers dopamine, um, the size of the reward, you know, delivering above expectations, right? Because that's one of the issues is, is we see that the dopamine falls off as we, as, a, as we get, if we only get what we expect, the dopamine, you know, triggers, like it, it dribbles downward. But if we get, if they get over delivered, then, you know, and that kind of goes back to, you know, something we've talked about before is this idea of like the cost and the price and the value having to be aligned correctly to be the iron law of, of economics, basically. There was some, we were, there was an, another time we talked about this, there was some optimal rate of delivering the prize. So you didn't, you didn't get it every single time, but maybe it was like half the time or something like that. Do you remember that? Yeah. So it, the, the study, I didn't quite go into all of this, but like they, if you, if you deliver the prize 75% of the time, it's actually a lower dopamine response. If you deliver it 25% of the time, it's a lower dopamine response. There's something about 50% that mm. like is the maximum <laughs> delivery. There's a um, Stanford uh, neuroscientist, Andrew Huberman, who's been doing the rounds on podcasts and he's, he's got his own podcast and he's, I, I sort of follow him on Instagram and he's, he's great, isn't he? I think he's, he's really kind of interesting. I think it's interesting that a lot of the things that he sort of talks about. So one of the, one of, one of his ideas is you deny yourself uh, a pleasure. Like you think I want to go and get a glass of water. And then he says, no, just wait, like deny yourself this time. And for every every denial you're supposed to get i think 20 or 25 denials over the course of a day and that keeps your dopamine receptors squeaky clean so you don't get that feeling of um you know not being rewarded and i think it's funny that and and, uh, there's some other stuff like you know meditation or sitting alone with your thoughts for a while and i think it's funny how we uh modern neuroscience is rediscovering all of these things from religion like meditation is physiologically probably identical to prayer Mm -hmm. and that idea of like not giving yourself the, you know, that's like the abignation, like the, the monks used to perform that abignation, like deny themselves all the time. So yeah, I think we're going to reinvent Even like religion. Fasting is a pretty like common fasting, in most religions. Yeah. There's a lot of ancient wisdom and embedded in religions, which I think allows them to, it's probably why they've persisted. Like they're useful. Fish on Fridays for mm. the Catholics. Ian. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, as you were talking to the area that it kind of caught my attention is just how companies communicate with investors, you know, around the thought process of, you know, under-promising, over-delivering, those that provide guidance, um, those that are transparent, uh, you know, it all kind of feeds back into dopamine, you know, and, and I, for one, I hate when companies give guidance, but I love when companies are 100% transparent, you know, when they do have that communication cycle every quarter on their earnings calls, you know, where you ask them a question and you, they give you a, they give you an answer. Um, and so that, that's, that's what I kind of came away with when you were talking. I was just thinking about how that, how that works with companies communicating with investors and doing it in a consistent, transparent manner. And are they doing it in a way to incite dopamine, you know, or, try to attract kind of more even keeled investors that aren't, you know, trying to gamble, you know, yeah. that they're 50% right. 
you know, <laughs> like you were saying. Yeah, uh, not the not those seven R variants of the, uh, yes. the dopamine receptor who are all novelty seeking and <laughs> yeah. risk taking. How much of this do you think is going to suffer from the replication crisis? Like, how far away from me figuring out all of this is bullshit? Uh, I don't know. I mean, some of the. I think that less because it's uh, number one, it's there's the animal analogs as well that like drive a lot of this, like the neurotransmitter parts of it. Um, and it's less like uh, one of the issues with that, especially like plagues social sciences is that they've only studied like, you know, US freshman psychology majors who are like a, a certain subset of humanity. And so when you go, yeah, when you go to, yeah, they're not real people. (laughs) So if you go take that and try to apply it in Asia, like some of the findings are completely off because it's just a, like there's material differences. Um, And there's a really interesting book about that called the weirdest people in the world. And weird is an acronym for like Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, something else. Uh, But they, uh, so like, you know, when you're, you're not getting the actual human human experience when you only look at this little subset that's at a university where a lot of the research was done have we killed the marshmallow test is that is that have we decided that that's not true i I, my last i heard about that was that it it failed replication uh but then some others have found that it did have some explanatory power so i think maybe the jury's still out on that i don't know about the market at the moment and and shoot us your questions guys if you if you if you got anything yeah i know you're becoming less macro ian but do you like do, do you um but where's the market going <laughs> do you just yeah, think this is great my my opportunities my screen's filling it with opportunities it is it's there's a there's a lot of opportunities and right now like kind of the, the first question i asked jake is kind of where i where i'm where I'm at, where I'm just trying to weigh new ideas versus things I already know and trust. Um, and there's also adding a new position also, you know, gets back to, you know, where your concentration limits are too, because you only want to add perhaps so much to, you know, the five or six or eight companies you already own as well. So that might force you into new ideas, but. Maybe no, the I mean, other I, I, inverted way of asking ahead. this is like, uh, how are you thinking about cash balances? <laughs> Low at the moment. Um, I, I really like the opportunities that we have it. So it's, it's relatively low, you know, I, but I also can't pick a bottom. So what the portfolio looks like today is me adding pretty much every day, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it might not be material in any day, like the amount I'm adding to the overall performance in two years, but, um, but we have enough that we can add a little bit every day and also scratches the itch that you're taking advantage of the opportunity that's presented yeah. itself. It makes the down know? day so, a little more palatable. Exactly. When you can, it's like, more of a oh, psychological I'm averaging thing down. almost. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It makes you feel like you're, because nothing's, nothing's worse than going through a drawdown and not having cash to take advantage of it. I mean, and that's why if you don't have cash to take advantage of it, like turn the monitors off. Like there's no point in watching the madness, you know? Because um, what else are you going to be doing? If you know your businesses and you believe in them, but you don't have any cash, like there's no use getting more emotional watching the ticker tape. That's pretty sound advice, I think. Unless there's trading up that you are really interested right. in doing. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah. Just yeah, I think you need to the be, hatches. I, I, I've had lots of people reach out and say, um, oh, you know, I've been, hold, I've been hoarding a whole lot of cash for just this, this opportunity. And if it goes down another, like, picky percent. 
I'm, yeah. I'm all in. <laughs> I'm all in. Yeah. I think we're all all in at that point. We'll be ripping up the floorboards in the in the caboose and throwing them into the boiler. That I think that um, I don't think that's a good way of doing it to like just hold a big pile of cash and hope that you're going to get some arbitrary number on the drawdown or arbitrary number on the index. And then hero be, trade the bottom tick. It works once every 10 times and the other nine times you wish you'd bought a little bit, I think. And you're only going to get five of, the, five of these in your life. So I don't think you want to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you don't want to go one. That's not a high odds. enough hit rate. Yeah. I've had two. I think, I think, who knows? I get the feeling we, probably, we, we may have a third. Actually, I don't know. It could be. I, I, I don't know if it's 2018 or, or, or 2008. It could be 2022 for all I know. I've got no idea. I haven't been keeping track. Yeah. It's a, Maybe it's, it's just own thing too. Like there's no, you know, it doesn't always have to have an analog, right? Yeah. Yeah. Does it help to have an analog? I don't know. Not sure. Cause it's, I mean, they're all so different in their own ways. And then we try to like smash them into these like boxes yeah. and say like, this is like this, even though. Yeah. Does it change the way you behave if you if you think it's like oh this is 1972 with a hint of 2008? Yeah, it's uh it's 27 percent 1972, 34% 99. I wonder how they will characterize this in the like. Do you think that the the tech companies which all started tipping over in February last year, and then there was like the value bounce which took until kind of September 2020. And now we've gone into like another drawdown. So what what, do you, what is driving this? this is, I think this is a very strange set of circumstances. I don't know. Is it's it? Above, it's above my pay grade. I know. Jake? Is it? Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> uh, against my better judgment, I don't. Are people worried about a bigger recession, like macro problem, or is this just a kind of valuation led? Like, listen, this has got way ahead of itself. Like, we need to come bring some of these multiples back to reality a little bit. And that's what it could look like. Doesn't mean that the world is ending. I mean, there's some genuine business interruption out there with the, the inflation for, for businesses. And then that's coupled with uh, really the supply chain it, problems. Though, has it? I don't know. So, but the supply chain problems are real. I mean, I are talk there, to guys all the time. Where are the who, bankruptcies though? Have they started? That's, that's fair. That's fair. Everybody's very cashed up. I saw, uh, Jake at Economic was talking about this a few weeks ago that house prices have tended to follow not affordability but uh, discretionary income. So as people get more discretionary income, which there, there seem to be a, a lot of um, discretionary income through twenty twenty, <laughs> yeah, well that might be why the NFTs went up. <laughs> I don't know. That, that is a little bit above my pay grade. There, um, there's so many. There's so many undercurrents to it. Toby as well. It's like a, a friend of mine, he owns a fleet fueling company. And when diesel, at least here in the US, went above $6 recently, $6 a gallon, and who knows what it is in Europe, it's probably double that. But you know, for the independent truck driver, um, it was more or less like a 25% decrease in take-home pay, you know, what's occurred over the last right. two months. Yikes. You know, and that's that's supply chain disruption. That's money, you know, it's there's so many undercurrents to the disruption of everything. You know, it's hard to come out with a single answer that makes sense. Uh, there's a question here. What's what's my feeling on value, real economy stuff? I think it falls out of bed with everything else or it works as growth falls out of bed. 
that's kind of what I was trying that's to. The, that's the billion dollar question. Isn't that it? is. And that's kind of what I was trying to, uh, that's what I was alluding to before when you're trying to pick the, um, you know, trying to pick the analog for this time around. If this is 2000, then value rips and uh, everything falls over and I'll be cheering. Everybody else will be crying or everybody on this call probably be cheering. But then um, I honestly don't know. I could, I, I, I could, I think that, you know, to be fair value is at least fair value or, or close to fair value. So I've never seen a drawdown stop at fair value. They always go well through fair value. I, I would say you can't rely on it holding up. I, th- I assume everything's going to get down 50% if it, if it happens. Yeah. How's, how big is the value of value right now? Compared well, the spread, I know that some, someone wanted an update on the spread. AQR updated the spread. Cliff Astness updated the spread. Uh, Jake sent it to me yesterday. It's only just moved. I think what was the what was the, the it's only just begun year to date. What what did, what did he call the the chart? Oh, yeah, I can't remember. It was it was a clever, pithy title. I should. Uh... The spread is still very wide. I was I was trying to get the uh, Alpha Architect website update to deliver it, but they've their data only goes through to three thirty one. Come on, I'm still looking for the four thirty update for how wide that spread is. Let's go, Wes. But Bill did seem uh, not Bill. Uh, Cliff Asness, I often get them confused. Cliff Asness was saying um, he thinks that the, the spread has started closing, but that's driven by energy, I think. When do you decide to catch the knife? Yeah, so <laughs> I think that you want to ignore price action as much as you possibly can and just when you get your price because you don't, you've got no idea what everybody else in the stock is doing, why they're selling. People can be selling because they've got margin calls or they've got other stuff they want to buy or they got still, a personal expense. Still crazy after all this year today. There we go. <laughs> it's just a chart. He's he's just started tweeting at charts. Or he's just started posting charts. Here's a good one from Samson. Why is Bitcoin correlated to the market? I've noticed that too, and I don't know. It's correlated to NASDAQ, correlated to tech stocks. It's kind of risk on, I guess. I don't know. What's... Yeah, I think so. Keep up your twits, Ian. They are amazing. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. The last twelve months, Toby, you probably you know talked about it you know far more than I have. But you know, you had sort of the COVID trade technology go straight up, and then you had COVID getting better trade cyclicals. You know, kick in, travel kicks in, and now people are worried about recessions, so they come off. And so kind of, I think an interesting spot just is kind of healthcare, you know, because that's usually defensive. And then, you know, you look at the XBI, I'm not talking about unprofitable healthcare, which the XBI is, but, you know, it's an interesting area that's been completely wiped that out. Biotech? Yeah, that's biotech, but more the healthcare side of things. So, you know, even that's been, it's been fairly brutalized, you know, and that's a very, very defensive place to be. Um, so I find that area interesting, kind of healthcare in general. I noticed that uh, 2008, 2009, I was I bought a lot of biotech that was sub cash. Um, I don't know if I'd do that again, but Free there pipeline, were. So. Yeah, there were there was like a lot of the index was a lot of the biotech was 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 sub its cash, and I, I went for the ones that had activists in there trying to get the cash out. That worked work okay. Out. It did work, except the the best one that I had was one that the, they got FDA approval, not not an activist getting the cash out. Yeah. There are some home runs in there if you can. Better to be lucky. Yeah. But I mean, you're kind of buying cheap lotto tickets in a way. So I think sometimes in that basket. 
Yeah, a friend of mine who's a biotech investor, he was going to be putting an article together or something together um, about like the top 10 opportunities he sees of the basket of companies that are trading at cash. Can you kind of do an that, ETF for us? To, in that bias. I know. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to do all that work. <laughs> I know. I was like, I'm not doing it either. But he said he's, he's working on it. That's kind of his area of expertise. If he does, you know, it, it, not all cash is created equally, especially when you're burning through it like a lot of those companies too. But True. it's still some interesting setups. Yeah, a lot of someone's, Brad actually has said, uh, sort of chat recently about 20% of XBI being sub cash. That's, that's what, that's kind of why I was referring to it because um, I think that that, that does exist now, which might be an argument that we're closer to the bottom than we are at the top. But I don't know. Bottom calling's uh, above my pay grade too. Aaron, thirty <laughs> percent either direction from here over the next twelve months. That's my that's my pick. Bold, <laughs> <laughs> very bold. And that's time. Thanks, Ian. We uh, appreciate yeah, having you me. on every now and again. Yeah, JT, as always. Uh, sorry, just a, a note. We'll, we'll be off next week. I've got a, uh, I've got a clash. I'm doing. I'll be on Bloomberg. If you, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to <laughs> listen to me talk about uh, things that I can't talk about on this, on this podcast, so it'll be Bloomberg at uh, ten eighteen Pacific, uh, one eighteen oh. Eastern on set Tuesday your, next week. Set your recording. <laughs> so, 